Chapter 3 of In the Heart of Africa by Samuel White Baker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 The Arabs' Exodus. It was the season of rejoicing. Everybody appeared in good humor. The distended udders of thousands of camels were an assurance of plenty. The burning sun that for nine months had scorched the earth was veiled by passing clouds. The cattle that had panted for water, and whose food was withered straw, were filled with juicy fodder. The camels that had subsisted upon the dried and leafless twigs and branches now feasted upon the succulent tops of the mimosas. Throngs of women and children, mounted upon camels, protected by the peculiar gaudy saddle-hood, ornamented with cowrie shells, accompanied the march. Thousands of sheep and goats, driven by Arab boys, were straggling in all directions. Baggage camels, heavily laden with a quaint household goods, blocked up the way. The fine bronzed figures of Arabs, with sword and shield, and white topes or plaids, guided their milk-white dromedaries through the confused throng with the usual placid dignity of their race, simply passing by with the usual greeting, Salam alaikum peace be with you. It was the exodus. All were hurrying toward the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, where men and beasts would be secure, not only from the fevers of the south, but from that deadly enemy to camels and cattle, the fly. This terrible insect drove all before it. If all were right in migrating to the north, it was a logical conclusion that we were wrong in going to the south during the rainy season. However, we now heard from the Arabs that we were within a couple of hours' march from the camp of the great sheikh, Ahmed Abusin, to whom I had a letter of introduction. At the expiration of about that time, we halted and pitched the tents among some shady mimosas while I sent Mohammed to Abusin with the letter and my firman. I was busily engaged in making sundry necessary arrangements in the tent when Mohammed returned and announced the arrival of the great sheikh in person. He was attended by several of his principal people, and as he approached through the bright green mimosas mounted upon a beautiful snow-white hygiene, I was exceedingly struck with his venerable and dignified appearance. Upon near arrival I went forward to meet him and to assist him from his camel, but his animal knelt immediately at his command, and he dismounted with the ease and agility of a man of twenty. He was the most magnificent specimen of an Arab that I have ever seen. Although upward of eighty years of age, he was as erect as a lance and did not appear more than between fifty and sixty. He was of Herculean stature, about six feet three inches high, with immensely broad shoulders and chest, a remarkably arched nose, eyes like an eagle's beneath large, shaggy, but perfectly white eyebrows. A snow-white beard of great thickness descended below the middle of his breast. He wore a large white turban and a white cashmere abai, or long robe, from the throat to the ankles. As a desert patriarch, he was superb, the very perfection of all that the imagination could paint, if we should personify Abraham at the head of his people. This grand old Arab, with the greatest politeness, insisted upon our immediately accompanying him to his camp, and he would not allow us to remain in his country as strangers. 
he would hear of no excuses, but at once gave orders to Mahomet to have the baggage repacked and the tents removed, and while we were requested to mount two superb white hygienes with saddlecloths of blue Persian sheepskins that he had immediately accoutred when he heard from Mohammed of our miserable camels. The tent was struck, and we joined our venerable host with a line of wild and splendidly mounted attendants who followed us toward the sheik's encampment. Among the retinue of the aged sheik, whom we now accompanied, were ten of his sons, some of whom appeared to be quite as old as their father. We had ridden about two miles when we were suddenly met by a crowd of mounted men armed with the usual swords and shields. Many were on horses, others upon hygienes, and all drew up in lines parallel with our approach. These were Abu Sin's people, who had assembled to give us the honorary welcome as guests of their chief. This etiquette of the Arabs consists in galloping singly at full speed across the line of advance, the rider flourishing the sword over his head, and at the same moment reining up his horse upon its haunches so as to bring it to a sudden halt. This, having been performed by about a hundred riders upon both horses and hygienes, they fell into line behind our party, and thus escorted we shortly arrived at the Arab encampment. In all countries the warmth of a public welcome appears to be exhibited by noise. The whole neighborhood had congregated to meet us. Crowds of women raised the wild, shrill cry that is sounded alike for joy or sorrow. Drums were beat. Men dashed about with drawn swords and engaged in mimic fight, and in the midst of din and confusion we halted and dismounted. With peculiar grace of manner, the old sheik assisted my wife to dismount, and led her to an open shed arranged with angareps, stretchers, covered with Persian carpets and cushions, so as to form a divan. Sherbet, pipes, and coffee were shortly handed to us, and Mahomet, as dragoman, translated the customary interchange of compliments. The sheik assured us that our unexpected arrival among them was like the blessing of a new moon, the depth of which expression no one can understand who has not experienced life in the desert, where the first faint crescent is greeted with such enthusiasm. Abu Sin had arranged to move northward on the following day. We therefore agreed to pass one day in his camp and to leave the next morning for Sofi on the Atbara, about seventy-eight miles distant. From Korosko to this point we had already passed the Bedouins, Bisharins, Haydendawas, Halangas, until we had entered the Shukarayas. On the west of our present position were the Jalans. To the south, near Sofai, were the Dabainas. Many of the tribes claim a right to the title of Bedouins as descended from that race. The customs of all the Arabs are nearly similar, and the distinction in appearance is confined to a peculiarity in dressing the hair. This is a matter of great importance among both men and women. It would be tedious to describe the minutiae of the various coiffures, but the great desire of with all tribes except the Jalen is to have a vast quantity of hair arranged in their own peculiar fashion, and not only smeared but covered with as much fat as can be made to adhere. Thus, should a man wish to get himself up as a great dandy, he would put at least a half a pound of butter or other fat upon his head. This would be worked up with his coarse locks by a friend until it somewhat resembled a cauliflower. 
he would then arrange his tope or plaid of thick cotton cloth and throw one end over his left shoulder while slung from the same shoulder his circular shield would hang upon his back suspended by a strap over his right shoulder would hang his long two-edged broadsword fat is the great desideratum of an arab his head as i have described should be a mass of grease he rubs his body with oil or other ointment his clothes that is his one garment or tope is covered with grease and internally he swallows as much as he can procure the great sheikh Sin, who is upward of eighty as upright as a dart a perfect hercules and whose children and grandchildren are like the sand of the seashore has always consumed daily throughout his life two ratolis pounds of melted butter a short time before i left the country he married a new young wife about fourteen years of age this may be a hint to octogenarians the fat most esteemed for dressing the hair is that of the sheep this undergoes a curious preparation which renders it similar in appearance to cold cream upon the raw fat being taken from the animal it is chewed in the mouth by an arab for about two hours being frequently taken out for examination during that time until it has assumed the desired consistency to prepare sufficient to enable a man to appear in full dress several persons must be employed in masticating fat at the same time this species of pomade when properly made is perfectly white and exceedingly light and frothy it may be imagined that when exposed to a burning sun the beauty of the headdress quickly disappears but the oil runs down the neck and back which is considered quite correct especially when the tope becomes thoroughly greased the man is then perfectly anointed we had seen an amusing example of this when on the march from berber to gozerajup the turk haji achmet had pressed into our service as a guide for a few miles a dandy who had just been arranged as a cauliflower with at least a half a pound of white fat upon his head as we were traveling upwards of four miles an hour in intense heat during which he was obliged to run the fat ran quicker than he did and at the end of a couple of hours both the dandy and his pomade were exhausted the poor fellow had to return to his friends with a total loss of personal appearance and a half a pound of butter not only are the arabs particular in their pomade but great attention is bestowed upon perfumery especially by the women various perfumes are brought from cairo by the native travelling merchants among which those most in demand are oil of roses oil of sandalwood an essence from the blossom of a species of mimosa essence of musk and the oil of cloves the women have a particular method of scenting their bodies and clothes by an operation that is considered to be one of the necessaries of life and which is repeated at regular intervals in the floor of the tent or hut as it may chance to be a small hole is excavated sufficiently large to contain a common-sized champagne bottle a fire of charcoal or of simply glowing embers is made within the hole into which the woman about to be scented throws a handful of various drugs she then takes off the cloth or tope which forms her dress and crouches naked over the fumes while she arranges her robe to fall as a mantle from her neck to the ground like a tent 
when this arrangement is concluded she is perfectly happy as none of the precious fumes can escape all being retained beneath the robe precisely as if she wore a crinoline with an incense burner beneath it which be a far more simple way of performing the operation she now begins to perspire freely in the hot air bath and the pores of the skin being thus opened and moist the volatile oil from the smoke of the burning perfumes is immediately absorbed by the time the fire has expired the scenting process is completed and both her person and her robe are redolent of incense with which they are so thoroughly impregnated that i have frequently smelt the party of women strongly at a full hundred yards distance when the wind has been blowing from their direction the arab women do not indulge in fashions strictly conservative in their manners and customs they never imitate but they simply vie with each other in the superlativeness of their own style thus the dressing of the hair is a most elaborate affair which occupies a considerable portion of their time it is quite impossible for an arab woman to arrange her own hair she therefore employs an assistant who if clever in the art will generally occupy about three days before the operation is concluded first the hair must be combed with a long skewer-like pin then when well divided it becomes possible to use an exceedingly coarse wooden comb when the hair is reduced to reasonable order by the latter process a vigorous hunt takes place which occupies about an hour according to the amount of game preserved the sport concluded the hair is rubbed with a mixture of oil of roses myrrh and sandalwood dust mixed with a powder of cloves and cassia when well greased and rendered somewhat stiff by the solids thus introduced it is plated into at least two hundred fine plates each of these plates is then smeared with a mixture of sandalwood dust and either gum or water or paste of dura flour on the last day of the operation each tiny plate is carefully opened by the long hairpin or skewer and the head is ravasante scented and frizzled in this manner with a well-greased taupe or robe the arab lady's toilet is complete her head is then a little larger than the largest sized english mop and her perfume is something between the aroma of a perfumer shop and the monkey house at the zoological gardens this is considered very killing and i have been quite of that opinion when a crowd of women have visited my wife in our tent with the thermometer at ninety-five degrees and have kindly consented to allow me to remain as one of the party it is hardly necessary to add that the operation of hairdressing is not often performed but that the effect is permanent for about a week during which time the game becomes so excessively lively that the creatures required stirring up with a long hairpin or skewer when too unruly this appears to be constantly necessary from the vigorous employment of the ruling scepter during this conversation a levy of arab women in the tent was therefore a disagreeable invasion as we dreaded the fugitives fortunately they appeared to cling to the followers of mahomet in preference to christians the plague of lice brought upon the egyptians by moses has certainly adhered to the country ever since if lice is the proper translation of the hebrew word in the old testament it is my own opinion that the insects thus inflicted upon the population were not lice but ticks exodus eight sixteen 
the dust became lice throughout all egypt again exodus eight seventeen smote dust it became the lice in man and beast now the louse that infests the human body and hair has no connection whatever with dust and if subject to a few hours exposure to the dry heat of the burning sand it would shrivel and die but the tick is an inhabitant of the dust a dry horny insect without any apparent moisture in its composition it lives in hot sand and dust where it cannot possibly obtain nourishment until some wretched animal lies down upon the spot when it becomes covered with these horrible vermin i have frequently seen dry desert places so infested with ticks that the ground was perfectly alive with them and it would have been impossible to rest on the earth in such spots the passage in exodus has frequently occurred to me as bearing reference to these vermin which are the greatest enemies to man and beast it is well known that from the size of a grain of sand in their natural state they will distend to the size of a hazelnut after having preyed for some days upon the blood of an animal the arabs are invariably infested with lice not only in their hair but upon their bodies and clothes even the small charms or spells worn upon the arm in neatly sewn leathern packets are full of these vermin such spells are generally verses copied from the koran by the fakir or priest who receives some small gratuity in exchange the men wear several such talismans upon the arm above the elbow but the women wear a large bunch of charms as a sort of chatelaine suspended beneath their clothes around the waist although the tope or robe loosely but gracefully arranged around the body appears to be the whole of the costume the women wear beneath this garment a thin blue cotton cloth lightly bound around the loins which descends to a little above the knee beneath this next to the skin is the last garment the rahat the latter is only clothing of young girls and may be either perfectly simple or adorned with beads and cowrie shells according to the fancy of the wearer it is perfectly effective as a dress and admirably adapted to the climate the rahat is a fringe of fine dark brown or reddish twine fastened to a belt and worn around the waist on either side are two long tassels that are generally ornamented with beads or cowries and dangle nearly to the ankles while the rahat itself should descend to a little above the knee or be rather shorter than a highland kilt nothing can be prettier or more simple in this dress which although short is of such thickly hanging fringe that it perfectly answers the purpose for which it is intended many of the arab girls are remarkably good-looking with fine figures until they become mothers they generally marry at the age of thirteen or fourteen but frequently at twelve or even earlier until married the rahat is their sole garment throughout the arab tribes of upper egypt chastity is a necessity as an operation is performed at the early age from three to five years that thoroughly protects all females and which renders them physically proof against incontinency there is but little love-making among the arabs the affair of matrimony usually commences by a present to the father of the girl which if accepted is followed by a similar advance to the girl herself and the arrangement is completed all the friends of both parties are called together for the wedding pistols and guns are fired off if possessed 
there is much feasting and the unfortunate bridegroom undergoes the ordeal of whipping by the relatives of his bride in order to test his courage sometimes this punishment is exceedingly severe being inflicted with a kurbach or whip of hippopotamus hide which is cracked vigorously about his ribs and back if the happy husband wishes to be considered a man worth having he must receive the chastisement with an expression of enjoyment in which case the crowds of women again raise their thrilling cry in admiration after the rejoicings of the day are over the bride is led in the evening to the residence of her husband while a beating of drums and strunging of guitars rababas are kept up for some hours during the night with the usual discordant singing there is no divorce court among the arabs they are not sufficiently advanced in civilization to accept a pecuniary fine as the price of a wife's dishonor but a stroke of the husband's sword or a stab with a knife is generally the ready remedy for infidelity although strict mohammedans the women are never veiled nor do they adopt the excessive reserve assumed by the turks and egyptians the arab women are generally idle and one of the conditions of accepting a suitor is that a female slave is to be provided for the special use of the wife no arab woman will engage herself as a domestic servant thus so long as their present custom shall remain unchanged slaves are creatures of necessity although the law of mahomet limits the number of wives for each man to four at one time the arab women do not appear to restrict their husbands to this allowance and the slaves of the establishment occupy the position of concubines the arabs adhere strictly to their ancient customs independently of the comparatively recent laws established by mahomet thus concubinage is not considered a breach of morality neither is it regarded by the legitimate wives with jealousy they attach great importance to the law of moses and to the customs of their forefathers neither can they understand the reason for a change of habit in any respect where necessity has not suggested the reform the arabs are creatures of necessity their nomadic life is compulsory as the existence of their flocks and herds depends upon the pasturage thus with the change of seasons they must change their localities according to the presence of fodder for their cattle driven to and fro by the accidents of climate the arab has been compelled to become a wanderer and precisely as the wild beasts of the country are driven from place to place either by the arrival of the fly the lack of pasturage or by the want of water even so must the flocks of the arab obey the law of necessity in a country where the burning sun and total absence of rain for nine months of the year convert the green pastures into a sandy desert the arab cannot halt on one spot longer than the pasturage will support his flocks therefore his necessity is food for his beasts the object of his life being fodder he must wander in search of the ever-changing supply his wants must be few as the constant changes of encampment necessitate the transport of all his household goods thus he reduces to a minimum the domestic furniture and utensils no desires for strange and fresh objects excite his mind to improvement or alter his original habits he must limit his impedimenta not increase them thus with a few necessary articles he is contented 
mats for his tents, ropes manufactured with the hair of his goats and camels, pots for carrying fat, water jars and earthenware pots or gourd-like shells for containing milk, leather water skins for the desert, and sheepskin bags for his clothes, these are the requirements of the Arabs. Their patterns have never changed, but the water jar of today is the same form as that carried to the well by the women of thousands of years ago. The conversation of the Arabs is in the exact style of the Old Testament. The name of God is coupled with every trifling incident in life, and they believe in the continual action of divine special interference. Should a famine afflict the country, it is expressed in the stern language of the Bible. The Lord has sent a grievous famine upon the land. Or, the Lord called for a famine, and it came upon the land. Should their cattle fall sick, it is considered to be an affliction by divine command. Or, should the flocks prosper and multiply particularly well during one season, their prosperity is attributed to special interference. Nothing can happen in the usual routine of daily life without a direct connection with the hand of God, according to the Arab's belief. This striking similarity to the descriptions of the Old Testament is exceedingly interesting to a traveler when residing among these curious and original people. With the Bible in one hand, and these unchanged tribes before the eyes, there is a thrilling illustration of the sacred record. The past becomes the present, the veil of three thousand years is raised, and the living picture is a witness to the exactness of the historical description. At the same time, there is a light thrown upon many obscure passages in the Old Testament by a knowledge of the present customs and figures of speech of the Arabs, which are precisely those that were practiced at the periods described. I do not attempt to enter upon a theological treatise, Therefore, it is unnecessary to allude specifically to these particular points. The sudden and desolating arrival of a flight of locusts, the plague, or any other unforeseen calamity is attributed to the anger of God and is believed to be an infliction of punishment upon the people thus visited, precisely as the plagues of Egypt were specially inflicted upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Should the present history of the country be written by an Arab scribe, the style of the description would be purely that of the Old Testament, and the various calamities or the good fortunes that have in the course of nature befallen both the tribes and individuals would be recounted either as special visitations of divine wrath or blessings for good deeds performed. If, in a dream, a particular course of action is suggested, the Arab believes that God has spoken and directed him. The Arab scribe or historian would describe the event as the voice of the Lord, Kalam al-Allah, having spoken unto the person, or that God appeared to him in a dream and said, etc. Thus, much allowance would be necessary on the part of a European reader for the figurative ideas and expressions of the people. As the Arabs are unchanged, the theological opinions which they now hold are the same as those which prevailed in remote ages, with a simple addition of their belief in Mohammed as the prophet. End of chapter 3